0: Rachel Corbett is a journalist and the author of You Must Change Your Life, the story of Rainer Maria Rilke and August Rodin. This is Rachel Corbett. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with uh, Rachel Corbett. Uh, Thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, So I heard of you from your book, You Must Change Your Life, about um, Rainer Maria Rilke and August Rodin. Um, and I'm probably mispronouncing those names. You can feel free to correct me. Um, but well, why did you feel that their relationship was worth writing a whole book about?
1: Well, well, it's a good question because there's many books about both of these figures, as you know. Um, and I had to you know, think for a while about whether we needed a book about them, but I decided that we, we, we did in my opinion, because, um, there hadn't been really a sustained exploration of their their relationship, that their friendship and mentorship and the dynamic between the two um, uh, was actually a lot more influential, particularly on Rilke, than than I think a lot of people realized. Um, a lot of people like you know the most famous book in America, at least of Rilke's, is probably Letters to a Young Poet, and um, I was that book was very important to me, and as I was looking into it one day I I realized that he wrote that book while he was in Paris working as a um, working with Rodin and actually writing a monograph about him and later studying under him and working for him and I felt that a lot of what he was the, the wisdom that he was writing in that book was actually coming from Rodin, and this was something that hadn't really been talked about a whole lot. So I felt as I looked into it, I realized their relationship actually spanned some of Rilke's most important years. and actually he was he was pretty influential in um the thinking about Rodin at the time too. so i I just this was just kind of an incredible story, an incredible backstory to that that book that has become you know so beloved today.
0: Well, that part is interesting because it, he was, when he met Rodin, a young poet. And and so how did their relationship start? Rodin is more established as a sculptor already. Uh, Rilke is just an unknown writer. How, how did they come to meet?
1: Yeah, so uh, Rodin was in his 60s and he was already a pretty renowned sculptor in Paris. Rilke, as you say, was in his 20s, early 20s. And uh, really a nobody in in Germany. Um, and he was, uh, he was living in an artist colony in, in northern Germany at the time, Rilke was, and just kind of taking commissions, writing anything he could. He was writing a lot of art criticism, and he was writing poetry, but it was having, you know, not not such great luck getting it published, not really, you know, making much of a name for himself yet. And he, he meets there uh, a sculptor, Clara Vestoff, who he would come to marry. And she uh, had studied with Rodin in Paris. And so when he gets a commission uh, to write a monograph about Rodin from, a, from a, a publisher, he talks to Clara and she introduces him to Rodin. So that's really how the introduction starts. And then he goes to Paris and he he studies Rodin one summer. He spends the whole summer, you know, reading about his work, studying the pictures, and he really falls in love with the work. And then when he goes to Paris, he he finds himself realizing that he he doesn't just want to write a monograph about him. He really wants to understand the whole way that Rodin lives, the way he thinks about art, um, what he thinks about, you know, everything really. And he, he that's actually what that's actually how Rilke phrases it. He says at one point, I've come here to ask you how should I live? He basically wants to know how to be an artist. This is like for him kind of the the perfect model that he maybe didn't know he, he needed. And
0: and that is kind of an amazing question to ask someone, how should I live? That really puts them on a pedestal. Did he sort of become, uh, sort of like wrapped up or subservient to Rodin?
1: Yes. I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, he, uh, he he sees him, I would say, as really nothing short of a god. Uh, um, he sees him as this real hero, not just the great artist, but, but an artist who's sort of paved this really unique life for himself that's devoted entirely to his work and nothing else. And I think, you know, Rilke had a bit of a harder time um, with discipline and with staying focused and... Staying in one place he was very transient he moved around a lot he he would continue to do that but i think he saw in in rodin kind of an opposite and an aspiration he to the way like someone could an artist could really focus and do nothing but work and the other thing is i think rilke was very much dependent on other people uh to sort of reflect him and to validate him maybe in some ways and to feel like he had a kind of relational way of of writing and thinking about his own art. And then Rodin was sort of the opposite. He was very solitary. And I think he aspired to that and he learned how to do that. And he, um, you know, uh, like I said, he wrote the monograph and then he came back and stayed for another couple of years just to kind of be near him.
0: And, And do you think he fully, as a young man, understood the implications of what that sort of solitary, always working lifestyle meant?
1: Um no, because I you know, I think he, he romanticized it because in fact, he wasn't a very solitary person himself, I don't think. He thought he was. He talks a lot about solitude in his poetry, of course. Um, and he wasn't exactly like into parties or, or festivities or drinking or, or right. a lot of that kind of social life, but he he was, um, his closest relationships, really informed his work first with um, the, you know, Lou Andreas Salome, the, the Russian writer whom he had a relationship with and he kind of emulated for a while and admired and then later um, with Rodin and then, you know, later on and with other people in his life. So I think for him, solitude was the, was an ideal but it wasn't something he could live. Whereas Rodin I think was a truly, um, at least in terms of his work, a pretty solitary person. I think he he got his ideas more from from books and literature, nature, philosophy, other artists, but not so much from a sort of social and relational interaction. I don't I don't think he did have, of course, relationships with women. Famously, right. so it wasn't like he was a pure solitary soul either, um, as the legend would kind of have it. But I think you know in a very different way from from Milka. Like
0: and we touched on this a little bit earlier, but when you, he asked, how should one live? Rodin's response was, you know, you must always work. And that sounds like simple advice to an artist, you know, basically practice. Why did that motto carry so much weight for Rilke?
1: Um, I Well, like, I think partly because he had trouble with it for one thing, a little bit, he, he, uh, like I said, he lacked discipline in some ways, but I think also because he got wrapped in, in sort of like realizing a poem or an end, an end result, and he got and I think he got overwhelmed by the idea of the end result, and he could never make it. He he couldn't get there in a way. He he had he was a kind of, kind of ideals, images, and I think he had a hard or say he wanted to write um, about. The deepest human emotions, the most complex <laughs> emotions, and love and death, and and I think he, it overwhelmed him. And and I think with Rodin's motto to, to work always work was within that. It was also um, work incrementally, take take baby steps, one day at a time. You know, ch- chip away at the marble a little bit every day, and eventually you'll get the 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 sculpture that embodies. The feeling of love or death or whatever these emotions are. But that to get there, it was just really about discipline, showing up, labor. And that I think was appealing for Rilke because that made it suddenly manageable. That was something he could do every day that, you know, that he hadn't really thought of. He hadn't thought of art as like a craft in that way.
0: And in terms of Rodin as an artist, you, you were talking about you know, his lifestyle and how that appealed to Rilke and his work ethic. What about the art itself? How did the sculptures of Rodin have an influence on him?
1: Well, I think um, partly it was was the content, the subjects, um, the mythology, they shared a lot of similar interests in, you know, Greek mythology, like I said, the emotion. And um, he, I think through Rodin, you know, Discovered a lot of what would be enduring themes in his own poetry, like the cathedral, um, and Rodin kind of taught him to look at things in, in a different way. I think that was that was a large part of it. Seeing, I think, seeing the work develop was a large part of it. But also, he was really interested in the idea of um, a kind of imperfection that that Rodin. Uh, worked with the like for example one of the first things Rilke writes about when he goes to Paris is Rodin's um, uh, mask um, man with a broken nose it's a mask of a uh, actually like a gender in his studio a Greek man who was an alcoholic and his nose was broken and quite disfigured apparently and Rodin sculpted him exactly the way he looked and um, you know this was shocking and At the time, because uh, so much art had been about ideals, you know, perfect beauty, the, you know, Michelangelo, you know, David or something like this, like perfect forms. And um, this was sort of groundbreaking for Roca because this is what real beauty is, is life as it really looks, as it really is. Mm -hmm. And in, in that truth is more beauty than like in an ideal beauty, which is not truthful at all. So that became a kind of large theme for him to pursue. And that became something that you could achieve, again, through the work of observation, sort of by looking at something over and over and over again, and just kind of creating it as you see it, kind of step by step, again, that labor, that would produce the work of art. So it was kind of a a mix of form, you know, and the idea that I think Mm. we're combining in that.
0: And... Did, obviously, you know, Rilke is in awe of this guy, but did Rodan at all see anything special in him?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I think, at the beginning, I I think maybe not. Uh, He used to having kind of young young admirers come around and, you know, want to interview him, want to apprentice for him, work for him. Uh, And he taught so he had students get a lot of hangers on basically right and i think there was not really any reason for him to believe that rilke was anything special or anything different also there was the problem that uh rilke was a native german speaker and Rodin didn't speak german and rilke spoke pretty broken french in those early days so um so in the beginning i think so so rilke describes that when he first goes to meet Rodin, he brings him a page of poetry, and he knows that Rodin can't read it, but he wants him to look at it anyway, so that maybe he can look at the form of the words on the page and, and like admire the shape that they're in. <laughs> you know, <you're laughs> appreciate even if not in in language. And he does this, and Rodin kind of nods and seems a bit confused <laughs> by what he's supposed to do with it. But um, eventually, I think. Uh, so so when Rilke publishes, publishes his monograph about Rodin, which is, of course, completely you know, gushing and just full of praise, and um, some years later, it's finally translated into French, it was originally German, and someone, you know, Rodin hears, you know, um, that it's, it was very positive, he reads it. And he he writes a note to Rilke saying it's very beautiful. We don't really know much more than that about what he thought. And I think eventually they they, they go on to have all these conversations. When Rilke moves back to Paris, um, some years later, he, so, so he you know he went to go write the book, and then he goes back home, and then he comes back a few years later, and he's now a little bit more established. He's more confident. He's published some important works. And they start taking these long walks together. And I think that at that point they Rodin does see that this is someone with a, with a with a special mind, special ideas, and he really does go appreciate him.
0: And this is when Rilke became uh, Rodin's personal secretary.
1: Right, exactly. So he comes back and, and that that even in itself, I guess, in some ways a mark of validation because Rodin has at this point hired and fired many secretaries. Um, but they, uh, you know, and even after this point, uh, Rilke moves on with his life. He lives in Paris, but he kind of, you know, he's kind of moved on from the Rodin period. And suddenly Rodin starts coming to him all the time and it's saying, you know, can we, can we take a walk? How are you? He leaves him a fruit basket at his doorstep. He's kind of, he's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, chasing Rilke a little bit. So. We, You know, Rodin didn't write the letters like Rilke did, so we don't know exactly what was in his mind in the same way. He wasn't as, you know, we just don't have the record, but questions would indicate that he really did come to appreciate and admire Rilke back in some way.
0: And so you said at this point, Rilke is more established and he's not as much in awe of him or or still very much so?
1: Well, so that, so what happens is they have a falling out. Um, when, when he comes back to work as his secretary, um, Rodin treats him a little bit like he treats all of his previous secretaries, which is tyrannically. And, you know, he, he want, he, you know, gives him too much work. Basically he has kind of fits of rage. He's just sort of like a classic, you know, authoritarian, terrible boss or something. And, right. and real is also in, in, response kind of resentful because he also is giving up his entire life to do kind of menial labor for this guy answer his letters and you know do kind of busy work and or you some it's, it's administrative work it's not you know writing poetry so um he he is a little bit annoyed at how much work he's how much of, how much of his life he's giving up and at one point he kind of tries to um he has all these interesting figures coming in and out of Rodin's house, and he kind of tries to strike up relationships on his own with some of these interesting people that he knows. And at one point, he writes a letter to a, a, a collector of Rodin's art and just says something like, It was nice to meet you the other day at the, at the estate, you know. And Rodin finds out about this and has an explosive freak out and, and fires him for having the audacity to overstep his bounds as the secretary and create a personal relationship or contact with Rodin's private friend and associate. And um, it seems like certainly an overreaction and at least it did to Rilke. And he he says he was thrown out of the house like a thieving servant. um, And he feels really betrayed by this because it was starting to feel like maybe they were becoming more than just you know master and employee and something more like you know colleagues friends something like this and this sort of turned all of that on its head so he um he goes to Paris you know uh he was for Rodin in actually um Rodin's studio uh just outside of Paris kind of in the country so he moves into the city um on his own and they don't talk for a while and it's not till sometime later that he kind of they, they have sort of a, a, a connection.
0: And how much of Rodin's blow up do you think stems from the fact that he was on top here? He, he had greater power in the relationship. And then sort of there was this power shift and he was trying to hold on to his mastery over Rilke.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably right. I, I think he, I think, well, he did this with everyone. So he, he he fired all of his employees this way more or less. He chose, you know, young, um, young people with whom there was a natural power difference. But what's kind of interesting is he didn't just choose sort of servile young people who would do a good job and maybe didn't have aspirations for something else. He chose young people who were artists or, you know, musicians, poets, artists, interesting, creative people who he, he clearly valued their their creative abilities, not just their kind of servitude or their ability to do a job, you know, answering letters. So that's what's kind of interesting is that he, he seemed to really want to be a mentor. He valued that role. He also, you know, like I said, he taught at a school, he opened this school, in fact, of his own. And when he was young, that he wanted to be an orator or a professor. He really liked public speaking. He liked clearly that Kind of dynamic of sort of uh, commanding a room, particularly of young people. So, I think probably there was an element that he maybe felt you know Rilke was overstepping his bounds. Um, but at the same time, he kind of invites in people who he he must have on some level known they wouldn't always want to be purely his disciple or his his servant. You know, kind of uh, kind of figure. So he sort of set himself up for that. You know, before Rilke, it was Edgar Varese, the the composer who, um, you know, actually quit and was treated badly by Rodin as well and went on to have this kind of incredible career. So Rodin clearly, you know, had an eye for for talent. He just didn't know what to do with it, it seems like, yeah. once it was around.
0: And you said in the beginning of this podcast that Rilke saw Rodin as an opposite. And Rilke was not like this with people who would be mentors correct like letters to a young poet does not have any of that kind of tyrannical or venom to it
1: oh right yeah as as, you mean as a boss himself or something or right mentor himself yeah he didn't I as far as I know he was a much more kind of sort of softer more docile figure in some ways with his relationship I don't know that he really had a lot of well, I guess, you know, he, I'm trying to think of who he had as like sort of desire. He didn't have the desire, I don't think, to teach and orate and all of that like Rodin did. He, like the, the poet and Letters to Young Poet, he he never actually met as far as I know. Um, it was just a written correspondence. And I think that was also largely a way for him to work out his ideas and work out things he's writing. A lot of those letters kind of reemerge and differ in his other work so I think that was kind of partly for him too and then of course the other great mentorship relationship in Rilke's life is later when he's the mentor to uh, young Baltus but that's really almost like a father-son relationship and and that seemed to be you know entirely nurturing and it didn't don't see quite any of the hints of the tyranny that Rodin um had you know Rodin could be quite vengeful it seems that his ego is sort of wrapped up in his work and it just in in his power in a slightly different way than Rilke's was
0: well well, I I guess part of the reason why I asked the question is in some ways it seems strange to me why a guy like Rilke would admire uh, and want to be like a guy like Rodan
1: I see yeah that's true I mean I I think he was I think he was legitimately put off by this reaction and seeing and seeing this um, I, you know, the, the, I don't know how much of that he saw when he first came to work, or when he came to write the book about him. I don't know if they were close enough at that point to really see that side of him. I think what he really, what he, what he describes really seeing at that point was just the, the devotion to work, the sort of study, observation, all of the other qualities. Um, and then later, I think he's quite turned off by this side of him that he sees. I think in the, and the, in, 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 you know, and also in the side of him that he sees as really human and kind of fallible, impulsive, you know, kind of the the anger and also the kind of lust that he has later in life, the kind of women that he, he sort of the adultery, whatever, all the relationships he has, all of those qualities, Rilke is really kind of repulsed by in Rodin. And that's when sort of their relationship starts to change, I think, is wants to see these aspects of him so I don't think he was blind to it I just I think he maybe wasn't exposed to it in the early days oh,
0: okay and then on on the other hand I guess I you could see a similarity between the two in at the point of Rilke uh, basically abandoning his family I mean w- what is your take on that do you think that's a, a case of uh him mimicking Rodan or is this something that's innate to him
1: yeah, I, I think it's probably a combination of him being a bit young and um, not not really ready to stay in one place and, you know, um, be, you know, be responsible for, a per- I think he was much more interested in being a great poet than he was in being a, a great father or husband. And then I think in addition, found in Rodin a bit of a license to act that way a bit of a excuse um, to do what you want because because art was the highest calling above all else and so if you had that calling then you know well (laughs) like whatever happens happens it's it's more important to to follow it and this is the kind of that's the kind of language he used to 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 his wife to sort of justify why he was never around, why he always had to travel, you know. I, I, of course, I don't totally see why you have to travel all of the continent to, to write poetry. You'd think in some ways it's easy, not so, it'd be easier to stay home, but he um, he felt that he had to see new places, experience new things. This was how he was going to, you know. You know, in some ways I think that's, maybe there's truth in that. He was very young, he was in his early 20s, and he hadn't really experienced the world. And I just think he he just had a very nice, beautiful way of uh, excusing it. Right. (laughs) And and do
0: we know what his wife thought about all this? Like, Hey, why, you know, go ahead and travel, but let's take me and the kid.
1: Like. Yeah, it was, I think it was very painful for her. It's one of the saddest parts of Rilke's story to me, but because um, she was a brilliant artist as well. And you know she like I said she had already gone to Paris and met Rodin before Rilke had even you know really knew who he was and so she was really ambitious um really talented um they were they met in an artist colony so she was entirely committed to her work too um of course the circumstances were different for women so uh when she had their daughter uh she just she stayed home and That was what was expected. And she would write real good. In the beginning, you know, she was trying to be supportive. Uh, And as things, as the years went on, she started to complain about how she was able to do her own work. And she started to make it very clear that he was not pulling his weight, he wasn't providing. And he kind of dismissed it. And then when she went to their uh, mutual friend, Lou Andreas Salome, and said like, he's not paying child support, he's not here, he's not taking care of the work, Lou, Kind of, went to Rilga and 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 sort of laid into him and said you you've got to provide or else you know I, I threatened their friendship and you know really felt and that kind of got him into shape a little bit at least into paying but he was never he was never a um, a real father and at some point they kind of I think reach an understanding that they're not going to be a real family and they don't divorce but they live separately and they kind of I think once. Want- or accepts this. They, uh, I don't know that she ever really accepted it, but she sort of stops trying and And they be, they be, they have a amicable relationship. Um, you know, he goes on to to date other women, and they they break it off but and she's still maintained friendliness, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't go to his daughter's wedding when she grows up. Like he doesn't really ever have a relationship. And, and Clara lives a very long time, much longer than Rilke. And from what I understand, she was quite poor into old age. And, you know, really, you know, it's kind of a sad ending to her story, I think.
0: And what about his daughter? Did, did she ever speak about this?
1: You know, I would love to know more about his daughter. I don't really know much. She she married a lawyer, and um, I don't think she really said much publicly about the, the relationship. I don't think she, she she didn't write a book or anything. Or as far as I know, I, I don't know a lot. I, I was in touch with some relatives of you know descendants of hers um, who run Rilke's archive um, in terms of, you know getting materials, but I I couldn't really find out a whole lot about her personally. I think she was a pretty private person.
0: And what's interesting about that story is that it does kind of mirror Rodin, where he had a relationship with another ambitious artist, Camille Claudel, and sort of his personality and his way of living in many ways ruined her. Uh, At what point in the timeline, because I'm sure you're aware of that story, at what point in the timeline was that happening relative to Rilke's and his wife's relationship deteriorating?
1: Yeah, I mean that would have been. I mean, Clodel, the Clodel of you know, went on for 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 several years. Um, that was when um, that was, gosh, I mean that was before Rilke was really. That was before um, Rilke was was close to him. Um, so I don't know that he even knew. Really okay. about that, he he knew about. I mean, he maybe heard about it, but I don't know. He was more familiar with the woman Rodin dated late in his life, the American woman Schwaizl. So I, I don't think he met Claudel or anything like that.
0: Okay, and and do you think that regardless, did Rilke uh, Rilke regret his choices, at least with regard uh, to his family? Uh.
1: You know, I. Wanna really, you know, I want to really, really admire the guy. I just can't. He just wasn't so admirable in this regard. I, you know, not outwardly. He never did. I, I sometimes wonder if, in his sort of creation of a second family later in life, um, maybe this makes it even worse. I don't know. But in, you know, he he went on. He met late in life she had two sons and he mentors those boys. He really, I think, authentically loves these mm-hmm. these, these boys like his own. Um, and it part of it makes it even sadder for his daughter, Ruth, that, that they sort of had the father she didn't have. But on the other hand, I just think maybe he was more mature at that point in his life. He was able to give something that he didn't have to give before. And um, I don't know if in some way, maybe that was a way of... Uh, fulfilling his sort of failed promise before maybe this is a way of making good on it of course in a you know, different way in a kind of you know separate way but i, I no i don't know that he ever really, under, really expressed regret
0: um, Rilke at one point said to his wife and echoing Rodin, you must choose either happiness or or art Do you think that's, I mean, based on your study of these two men and also your, your knowledge of art history, do you think that's, that's a valid statement?
1: (laughs) Well, it it certainly seems to be true in many cases, a lot of unhappy artists out there, but I don't think it has to be true by any stretch. Um, I think that's a way of just, I think for both men, a way of justifying their unhappiness, certainly, you know, um, saying that they you know one has to suffer and therefore that's the life. I think it was a bit different. I think I think to, to, you know I guess to put a positive spin. I think for Rilke the thing that made him a great poet was that he was the, the that he kind of went to the full lengths of emotion, really embraced its depths and its highs and every you know in every direction and without being overwhelmed by it. He kind of really gives you a place to feel everything you feel. But also, he kind of holds your hand and says, "Like it's okay. We're you're going to get through this. I got through this. It's this is what life is." And that's kind of his great, beautiful talent, I think. And yeah, and part of that is really an emphasis on on, on the, the painful emotions, on, you know, not having happiness. Um, on the other hand, I don't know that he was really. I don't know how unhappy he really was. I mean, he he didn't have a bad life. He had you know, he had all these princesses giving him money and traveling to castles and traveling to, you know, all over Europe. And he was pretty successful in his life. And, um, you know, he certainly had a kind of depressive you know, way of speaking about himself and about life. But um, Rodin on the other hand, I think did sort of live by that code more and um, did, did feel, I think he had a sadder life in a way. He kind of, it was a smaller life. He didn't treat the people around him very well either. I think he was really, really hard on himself and suffered. And I think, I, 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 no, I don't think you need to, to choose that question or choo- choose choose happiness or art. Um, but, yeah, yeah well, go I, ahead.
0: No, um, I, I was just going to say that, you know, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time here, but... Uh, so the last question I wanted to ask you is, you know, clearly, you've made a statement on whether or not these two guys were happy. Um, but that that monomania, that ultra maniacal focus on the art, um, you know, you must always work. What l- lessons do you think that a young artist reading your book can can draw from these two guys? Um, and what ones do you think should be abandoned?
1: Uh well, I think the monomania lesson is interesting because actually, they were um, Rodin was maybe a monomaniacal artist. Rilke was not. He, he kind of aspired to be like Rodin. I think he espoused the language of monomania, but I don't think that actually he was a great poet because he focused only on work. I think he was a great poet because he really uh, observed the world, had deep relationships with other people, and felt, you know, like I said, the full experiences of his of his his full emotions. And that is in a way um not monument. That that isn't just work. That is really going out there and experiencing things. And and Rodin was a bit different. His world was a bit smaller. He didn't travel. He didn't have um, I don't think the, the, the quite the closeness of relationships. Um, and maybe that's why I see his life as a little bit sadder. But uh so I think. I think they both have good lessons. I mean, I think that, I think Rodin's discipline, I think what he says about observation is, is a great lesson, you know, that you start with the smallest thing and um, you start with a leaf and you reconstruct the leaf and you observe it from the bottom and then you kind of build outward and outward and outward and you get the tree, uh, finally. I think those are beautiful lessons. I think Rodin on observation um, is certainly applicable to anybody. Uh, and those are lessons that I think really good translates um and i think but also putting that monomania aside and also you know remembering to be a human is also a pretty good lesson <laughs>
0: um well cool uh rachel is there anything you want to plug or or get off your chest before we go
1: oh um no this is a great plug this is my favorite thing to talk about so i'm, I'm happy <laughs> perfect
0: all right uh rachel thanks so much for your time
1: thank you too i appreciate it all right,
0: take, take care. All right, thank you to Rachel Corbett, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.